0: Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to the analysis.news podcast. Cedric Johnson is an associate professor of African American studies and political science at the University of Illinois at Chicago, and editor of the neoliberal Deluge, Hurricane Katrina, Late Capitalism, and the Remaking of New Orleans. We're going to discuss the mass protests in Chicago and across the country with him, but before I welcome welcome him to the show, I want to share the quote from Karl Marx that he has at the bottom of the page of his emails. For those who don't know the context of the quote, the workers of Paris took over the city and established a radical socialist and revolutionary government that ruled Paris from the 18th of March to the 28th of May, 1871— The Commune, as it was known, the Paris Commune, was eventually crushed by the French army during a bloody week where many of the leaders were executed in Père Lachaise Cemetery. The song, the Internationale, perhaps the most optimistic lyrics ever written, was created in the days after the fall of the workers' government when the leaders were being executed. Here's the quote from Marx at the bottom of Cedric's email. The working class did not expect miracles from the commune. They have no ready-made utopias to introduce par le decree de la poupe, which I think means by decree of the people. They know that in order to work out their own emancipation, and along with it, that higher form to which present society is irresistibly tending by its own economical agencies, they will have to pass through long struggles, through a series of historic processes transforming circumstances and men. They have no ideals to realize, but to set free the elements of the new society with which old collapsing bourgeois society itself is pregnant. That's Karl Marx in the book, The Civil War in France, 1871. Now joining us is Cedric Johnson. Thanks for
1: joining us, Cedric. Hey, thanks so much for having me.
0: So how does this analysis of Marx from 1871 apply
1: to today? Well, you know what I like about that quote, um, it just offers sort of a dose of of sobriety, right? That when we're thinking about um, trying to transform the society in a much more uh, radical and democratic uh, direction, that it, whatever we do has to ultimately be anchored in what people's needs are. And, and, I think that there's there's definitely moments where working as an intellectual uh and, and being in conversation with other academics as well as, as uh intellectuals working in different settings, there's a tendency for us to sometime uh lose sight of that, right? So I like the fact that that Marx reminds us um about the the ferment of the the commune and how it's very much anchored in um, people's needs and the the kinds of struggles they were engaged in. I really enjoyed the part where he talks about the the the, the uh, we'll have to pass through long struggles and through um, a series of difficult historical processes. Because, especially in our own moment, right? And even with the with the uh, the mass protests we've seen over the last two weeks, I still think many people, at least a lot of the younger people I talked to and have had conversations with. Um, recently, still imagine that these things happen, um, immediately, right? That, that simply s- turning out into the streets and and, um, you know, speaking truth to power in and of itself is enough, as opposed to what we what we glimpse in that passage from Marx, which is about actually engaging in protracted struggles, struggles that transform circumstances and ultimately, uh, transform us as, as, uh, as participants. So I think, again, anchoring what we do in um, material conditions, trying to get a real clear sense of what our times are like. This is another problem with intellectual life, right? Sometimes we want to reach for what happened historically without thinking through what might be distinct about this particular moment. Um, As a quick instance, I I had someone recently mentioned to me uh, that they thought we were living through a moment that was essentially the nineteen uh, 18 pandemic, uh, the Great Depression, and the 1968 uh, Holy Week riots after the assassination of Martin Luther King, and I don't really think that's helpful, right? I think we have to we have to look at what we're experiencing right now as being very peculiar and unique, and it doesn't it doesn't lend itself to whatever strategies were used in the in 1918 or in the 1930s or even in the 1960s. So what is specific
0: about this moment? I lived through something somewhat like what's happening now. I was in Baltimore for eight years, and I was there during the Freddie Gray uprisings. Mm-hmm. And at that, at that time, the, that movement, that motion, which became very large and had similar character in the sense that it began as a spontaneous resistance uh, from Black youth, uh, especially youth from the poorest areas of Baltimore. And then joined by large numbers of white students and then large sections of you know, working class black youth, not from the poorest areas, but from across the city, mm-hmm. it took on some scale, but then it dissipated rather quickly. Uh, there wasn't a leadership that emerged that could take it to act two to another stage. When the cops got charged by the district attorney, that seemed to be enough to kind of diffuse things. Um, And it's not come back since, and there was nothing really built out of it. Right. But do you think this is a different moment now? Does this have uh, the various convergence of events and forces different than that?
1: I I think in some ways, I mean, it's definitely unprecedented, right? I mean, the the scale of of protest um every state in the union i think upwards of 500 different towns and and cities have had demonstrations and marches and so i mean there's no denying the um the fact that it's it's a triumphant moment for black lives matter cuz it's, it's important to remember black lives matter you know you mentioned baltimore which was one of the last of the the major um protests related to uh to black lives matter Before the election of Donald Trump. Right. I mean, there was some the summer in which he was elected in uh, in Dallas and Baton Rouge and as well as uh, as well as Minneapolis, St. Paul. Right. Because of uh, Philando Castile's killing. But the um, the right was quick to put the lid on that. Right. I mean, there was a there was a clear move by then candidate Donald Trump to put the lid back on Black Lives Matter and mobilize Blue Lives Matter. Uh, sentiments, you know, in the run-up to his his election, and so pretty much from 2016 until now, um, Black Lives Matter hasn't figured so prominently. Right? It was like there was a, a, a cycle of of protests in um, 2014, 2015, 2016, and then we see a bit of a, a of a, a dormancy. But I think there's no denying that it's a triumph. I would actually argue that there's multiple things going on at the moment that that may be mistakenly uh, gathered under the banner of Black Lives Matter. So I think on the one hand there's clearly the George Floyd protests which share a lot with the Freddie Gray um, moment that you mentioned. In some ways it goes beyond that, right? I mean, the kinds of demands that seem to be um, close or closer than they were before like dismantling the Minneapolis Police uh, Department which seems like some version of that may be uh, enacted by the city council um we didn't see that before in baltimore even here in chicago when people protested after the uh the killing of laquan mcdonald right uh, after the video of of his killing was released um so i think this this moment is different as, as far as the protests i mean i think there's we can on the one hand say that this is a an unprecedented level of of support for black lives matter i think i saw a poll that said Fifty-seven percent of Americans now believe that blacks are um, much more likely to be subjected to excessive police force, right? So I think, I think in that way, Black Lives Matter has become um, the majority opinion, right? Underneath it, I think there's something else that's happening as well, right? And so we could talk about the George Floyd protests, but we also saw what I would call a Donald Trump. Riots, right? So we saw uh, in many cities um, looting break out uh, again in unprecedented ways, right? I mean, if you think back to those Holy Week uh, riots after the killing of of uh, Martin Luther King Jr., most of those were concentrated in black neighborhoods, um, and they tended to be ghettoized in a certain certain way. What we saw over the last couple of weeks was uh, looting and um, property destruction in central commercial districts throughout the country right so rodeo drive there was looting uh the third street promenade in, in santa monica um times square you know union square in new york here in the mag mile and different parts of the uh the chicago loop and so that that's different right that's different than what we saw in in these earlier historical periods and i think also um you know the the uh, the actual uh, participants are different, right? And so it wasn't just simply the most dispossessed blacks who were uh, protesting and 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 engaging in looting, but you had a broad cross section of the population that were participating and 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 engaging in some of these uh, some of these these uh, recuperations of private property and and consumer goods that had been denied to them. And I think a lot of that, the reason why I say Donald Trump rides, a lot of that has to do with the backdrop of the pandemic. The fact that we have 40 million unemployed, you know, at least uh, based on on unemployment claims and many more people who um, are living, you know, close to to hunger in this country. Right. So I think that also, you know, as well as the COVID uh, cabin fever, I think people have been pent up for a couple of months. And so this moment to, allows people to be social to break the uh, the shelter in place, and there's there's also that dimension as well. Um, the last thing I'd say so there's the George Floyd protest, there's the Donald Trump riot, and then there's also this moment of neoliberal redemption that we're in right now, and I think that's that may be the most um, the most telling and important part of it that the 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 moment of George Floyd's really graphic and you know just undeniable abuse of police power in that moment has allowed many corporations that were under fire over the last uh couple months I mean especially the ones that were able to the ones connected to the gig economy that continue to work these delivery uh delivery companies as well as companies engaged in in various services Instacart Amazon um, you know uh, Lyft and all these other companies, which were under pressure from labor activists for their terrible uh, conditions even before the pandemic, but the ways in which they weren't really protecting uh, employees. This really sort of uh, provides them with an out, right? All of those companies posted some sort of blackout message. Um, on Blackout Tuesday, where they showed their solidarity with protesters, they talked about uh, the history of American racism, and I think it's interesting that it it provides an escape route for um, these corporations, as well as democratic elites, right? And so the very democratic elites who were, um, you know, threatened by uh, a Sanders campaign, now have a chance to, again, occupy the role of progressives, even if, you know, it was interesting to watch them this morning, you know, James Clyburn, um, Nancy Pelosi, Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, who've both been criticized for their role in like tough on crime policies in the past, all sort of uniting around um police reform. And so it's an interesting moment, I think that, you know, again, it sort of allows for this reconsolidation of um, you know, neoliberals, both within the corporate world, but also uh, on Capitol Hill.
0: I do a show where I interview people that starts sort of biographical and then gets into the politics. It's called Reality Asserts Itself. Mm-hmm. And the pandemic is reality asserts itself in a big way. Uh, there's these moments where The sort of fabric of uh, mythology, it's almost like a mist that covers up the reality of working class and poor people's lives. I mean, of course, they face the reality all the time, but the rest of the society, which to a large extent is the majority or was, that kind of does okay and is immersed in entertainment culture and, you know, mainstream news, which creates a kind of feeling that no matter what happens, there's always a kind of equilibrium right. and that the elites will always solve the problem somehow. And, you know, Katrina was a sh- shredding of that fabric yeah. of that mythology. You get these moments. Well, the pandemic's a big one. And I, I don't, we haven't had anything like that in my lifetime, I guess. Um, where the uh, idea that everything's going to be okay is really falling apart. And there's especially whole sections of the white working class that always felt, and and to some extent, I mean, there's not, it's not entirely white working class. There's some black workers and Latinx workers that also, you know, have done okay. They work in big industries that are unionized right. and they never imagined ever they'd be in poverty. Now the all these big sections of people are going to be facing losing their houses and, uh, you know, years of unemployment. So it, there, there is a real, change shaping right at the roots of the society. Mm-hmm. Um, and that converges with a time when people actually can go out and protest because there's no school and people don't have work. Right. Um, but my my question is, when you go back to the quote from Marx where, where one of the things he's saying is that uh, in order to work out their own emancipation, Uh, and along with it to a higher form, which present society is irresistibly tending. Uh, We know what he means by that is that socialism is born within capitalism. and, And you can see now if there was ever an obvious example of the need for socialized medicine and planning of socialized planning for pharmaceuticals and vaccination and testing and the chaos of the privately owned uh, American healthcare system. I mean, there's never been a a more stark example of why we need to move towards that kind of higher uh, form, which capitalism is take is taking us to although it's taking us uh, taking a long damn time if you like he wrote this in eighteen seventy one um but is that consciousness growing amongst the people on the streets
1: you know i think I think it is um I would say that the uh you know i think we've been building right i, I think we're not i said this to somebody recently in a on a email thread that I thought we were winning, and people you know it was a pretty skeptical group of folks, you know, and I I belong to that group. But I feel like over the last, you know, having lived um, long enough to remember the end of the Cold War, right, I think we're in a different moment than we were in when I was in my, you know, 20s and in in college, right? I feel like the, you know, the, the one example, right? I mean, you couldn't really talk about socialism in the circles I was in. In the nineteen nineties, early nineties, right, that was just wasn't a possibility. Um, you know, in the most, and this was majority black, mostly southern circles, right. Nobody was really talking about socialism. That was seen as as a sort of bad word. And even when I'm, that's be- that's, the, that's the effects of the Cold War propaganda. Right, absolutely, mm-hmm. right. And and then even even when I was in graduate school, I mean um among the students right we were you know there were there was a good bunch of us who were engaged in early kind of anti globalization um organizing and we a lot of us participated in the april twenty sixth demonstrations in in um in two thousand against the world bank in d c but for the most part, i mean most of the faculty weren't trying to talk about that stuff right that was an easy way to to sort of um you know, um, marginalize yourself if that's what you want to be, be alienated. If you if you embraced it openly, so I think when I meet people now, you know, especially people who are engaged as activists or graduate students, who who are actually who are actively writing about um, some of these these subjects and people who are organizing and you know publicly identifying themselves as as uh, as socialists, I see you know a bit of a change. But I mean, the Sanders campaigns for me maybe the best indicator of it. The fact that he was able to run as a democratic socialist and it didn't work against them. You know, I don't think for the most part, I mean, I think there are places where um, there's still a lot of work to be done, you know, in in the South in order to gain some traction. It's not that people aren't receptive to those ideas. One of the things that came out of the South Carolina contest primary democratic primary well, that there was growing numbers of people who supported Medicare for all. They just didn't support Sanders as a candidate, and many of them, you know, decided to support uh Biden, I think, out of um sort of a, a defensive strategy, right? That they in their minds they, they imagined that Biden would be the more viable candidate to defeat Trump. So it wasn't uh they didn't decide to do sort of aspirational voting but but voted defensively. Um I think the Sanders campaigns, but even before that, the, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street demonstrations and even elements of Black Lives Matter. I think we're seeing many more people warm up to the idea of public goods, warming up to the idea of decommodifying certain um, basic needs like housing, education, education. And other things, and so I, I see that I, I see movement, right? I see a consciousness that's changed dramatically, like I said, since the 1990s. I don't think we're totally there yet, and I think in some cities it feels better and it looks better than in other places. So, you know, I live in Chicago. We have strong uh, unions. We've had some some pretty big, you know, internationally recognized victories in the last. Decade or so with the Chicago Teachers Union, um, people turn out and contest any kind of neoliberal reforms that are coming from uh, different mayoral administrations or even from the governor that we had uh, in the last, you know, the last governor that we had here. Um, so I think there's this. It feels it feels palpable here, right? It feels that you could have a viable socialist left politics that's popular that's anchored in in. Neighborhoods, It's anchored in organizations and in unions. But there are other parts of the country where that just doesn't exist, right? I mean, I grew up in a right-to-work type state with low union density. And I think that's really uh, maybe where the next frontier of of organizing for people on the left really is. It's, it's beyond the, the cities, beyond the two coasts, but in the hinterlands of the country where it's not that people don't want um you know more in the way of of um, the kinds of advantages and and the kind of life that could be produced through um, public goods. There's just not a clear sense of the pathway from where they are now, where it's mostly Republican governors and in some cases Republican legislatures, to a situation where you would actually be able to achieve those kinds of things. So. I think, I think we are moving there, but I think there's a lot of work that still has to be done. Um, and I, I worry in a way, even about the framing with Black Lives Matter. You know, I've been a consistent critic of it. I think it doesn't really capture the problem, right? You know, when you look at, at the problem of policing, surely there's no denying black people are much more likely to be, uh, to be arrested, to be harassed, um, to be incarcerated, and potentially doing an arrest incident to be killed by by uh, police, and so those things are realities. but when you look at the the national trends because I think black lives Matter is very much an urban driven phenomenon right so if I'm in Chicago, of course, it makes total sense. but if I 'm in the Dakotas or if i 'm in um, you know some other part of the country, the demography changes dramatically and so when you look at the national figures on arrest related deaths um Black people are not the majority, right? They they make up maybe around 30% of the total number of people in any given year for the last few decades who are killed by police. The problem with that, you know, when you pose that sort of of um problem to people, pose that that reality to to people, you know, show them those statistics, there's no there's no shift in discussion towards how do we explain that like what is it that a black person you know like Freddie Gray or Laquan McDonald has in common with the Latinos the whites the Native Americans who are also killed by uh, by police in other places and so I think you know um, I wonder how. Um, the Black Lives Matter framing as seductive and as appealing as it may be to so many people really undermines the potential for much broader alliances, right? And and a return to a class analysis, because really what we've seen in the country, it's not just simply Black people who are being over-policed, but it's all working class people, and in particular, the most dispossessed segments of the population who are um you know sometimes dependent upon criminalized forms of work in order to survive, so I just wonder about the you know the the importance of 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 black lives matter as a as a way of framing the problem, whether it really helps us to move in a much more progressive way to build a kind of um you know alliances and and foster the consciousness you're talking about or whether it sets us back in some ways and and leaves us committed to a liberal understanding of the problems with American society, right?
0: Yeah, I I think you you put your finger on sort of the core or at least one of the most critical issues facing building a national popular movement, which is clearly what's needed now. In Baltimore, this idea that uh, – during the Freddie Gray struggle and uh, and, uh, otherwise, but particularly then, that black-led organizations would lead and whites could be allies. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't – like there was no room there that white working-class youth and workers had their own reasons to fight, not just to be allies – Right, and then there was this distinction between black-led organizations and others. Like I saw even recently, one of these org- groups in Baltimore has put out this this little guideline for youth, and one of them is don't trust any organization led by whites. <laughs> now, i now, I understand there's an element of legitimacy in that because there yeah. have been problems in the past of you know at these moments the white left, which is, you know, something, you know, often more educated and they come in and they can kind of take over these broader organizations. And, and there's, a, it's, a, it's not like that isn't a legitimate concern, mm-hmm. but on the other hand, how do you ever build a broad popular movement if it's so segregated? And, you know, I said to, the, you know, I used to argue with these guys, in Baltimore and I'd say listen you do need to understand you know you're a real minority in this country if the white workers and white youth aren't in struggle together with you you're not going to win right and even just from that most pragmatic point of view and then more so and, you know, this, this ideology of, you know, nothing to do with the whites and all that, it's actually very pro-black capitalism. They even characterize socialism as, you know, this is white European left ideology, socialism. So they wind up promoting black capitalism. Right. Know, is, is there In Baltimore, that's fairly strong. Is that true in Chicago?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I've even seen people wearing um, Black Wealth Matters. You know shirts, right? Mm-hmm. So you know both that in and of itself, you know the making of the shirts is is black evidence of black capitalism. But more generally, um, you know that that sentiment is still pretty widespread. You know if you look at uh, the celebrations or observances early this week of the uh, the Tulsa race riots, right? You know the way that that event is remembered, right? And 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 that was that was fairly common, unfortunately, right for um, black business persons to be targeted by racist vigilantes. Um, you know, I think in, in the case of Ada B. Wells, she made she migrated to Chicago from um, Memphis. She was in Memphis. She migrated to Chicago because some of her close friends in Memphis had been uh, assaulted and lynched. You know, two prominent black businessmen there. So this is a this is part of the historical record. But the way that it gets taken up, right, is is that this, is a, this was a moment in which Black wealth was uh, destroyed and therefore subsequent generations denied the opportunity to pursue, um, you know, wealth creation on par with whites. And I think for me, that's the fundamental flaw with Black Lives Matter more generally. I mean, I think it's always important to point out that there are different um, local manifestations. And I would probably say here in Chicago, Black Lives Matter tends to be a little bit more left of of center, right? Some people have even characterized as like the left wing of Black Lives Matter, where you'll find many more people who are talking about um, redistributive public policy, right? One of the things, I think they may have been among the first to call for scaling back police funding or rerouting it towards Various youth programs. I think they don't go far enough, but they do tend to be a little bit better than some other um, manifestations that are more focused on on really just a militant racial liberalism. And by by that, I simply mean that there's a deep commitment to American liberal democratic capitalist institutions. The problem is just they don't work for, or haven't worked for African Americans, right? And so they need to work. And you hear a lot of that rhetoric repeated. Um, you know, this past week, right? There's there've been a lot of people, a number of people have gotten up and made that case, right? That, you know, the the American project is great, um, but it could be greater if it was available to all, right? And that that's not exactly a radical set of ideas, right? But but it 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 takes on a certain uh air of militancy in the kind of, of um heated rhetoric that we've heard over the last couple of weeks. Um so, yeah, I just think, but it's inadequate, right, as a way of talking about these these, uh, these problems, especially the problem of, of policing. Yeah,
0: I, was, I was being interviewed on a radio show out of New York uh, yesterday, and uh, I was saying that, that, you know, who is this slogan Black Lives Matter addressed to? Because if you want to convince the elites that Black Lives Matter, well, you won't convince them because they don't think black lives matter Mm -hmm. and the reason they don't think black lives matter is because it's black lives if you're talking poor black or working class black it's a source of cheap labor they don't they only matter from that point of view there are some black lives that do matter to the elites nba Mm -hmm. players matter they get paid millions of dollars they get treated with respect uh, even idolized same for a lot of black entertainers it's working class and poor blacks don't matter. And they're not going to matter just because people say they matter. Right. They're going to matter because people get organized and assert power. That's the way they're going to matter. So I agree with you. It's a liberal formulation it doesn't get at the underlying issue, which is the reason that we have systemic racism. Mm-hmm. and it 's the same reason that white supremacy systemic racism existed in slave society is because it 's this pool of cheap labor and you you know we de- you, we dehumanize the society dehumanizes those it exploits and it's and, and uses racism to dehumanize those it super exploits mm-hmm. And, and and that doesn't get talked about very much uh, because then you have to really start to talk about okay then why is there chronic poverty which is because of this need for cheap labor and then what are the solutions well the solutions become you know socialistic solutions because you know we for years people have been trying to have reforms that deal with poverty and every reform winds up putting money into real estate developers and. Uh, various companies that get subsidized, right. but does nothing to actually alleviate the poverty. And that kind of conversation needs to be, I think, at the core of the movement and what young people are talking about. Because this brought, this is one of these rare moments in history where there really is a possible a possibility to break out of the sleep, the dormancy of the working class, including the unions, and maybe a real broad front could emerge here, uh, but but the conversation has to get uh, the what the way Marx talks about in this quote.
1: You know? Yeah, I think um, yeah, I, mean, I think we need we need analysis of of um, the political forces that are in motion. We need analysis of the economy that goes beyond you know the most simple formulations we can hear you know that can be turned into a slogan and I mean just two quick examples I think uh one historical of how this how this plays out um I can go back to the Katrina Katrina disaster as an example and then maybe one more one more contemporary um example from the last week that might be helpful for thinking about um the, the the dangers here if we don't if we don't criticize um, that kind of, of Black capitalist dimension where we could easily end up. So when the Katrina disaster uh, was unfolding, um, there were a few of us, folks I was connected to, who were uh, writing and thinking about New Orleans. And for a time, uh, there was a, one email I had going back and forth between myself, um, Adolf Reed, and John Arena, who wrote a really important book on public housing in New Orleans and how that was you know, the remaining public housing stock was destroyed uh, and made way for privatized uh, developments in the same place. But we had this conversation going back and forth where we were all baffled by the ways in which there was no major national demonstration, no march on New Orleans to save and protect the, the right of return for all New Orleanians. But yet at the same time, a year after that disaster, there was a a, a, a mass um, migration of activists and students and other folks to Gina, Louisiana, to support the Gina 6, right? So the year before, you've got a situation where, you know, a million people are displaced, um, nearly 2,000 people die, and you have, um, you know, a lot of uncertainty. It's not clear what's going to happen during that first year after Katrina, but yet we saw thousands of people um, hop in cars, you know, charter uh, buses and whatever else to make their way to Gina, Louisiana. And what they were protesting there was something fairly simple, but it actually, it actually anticipates or prefigures Black Lives Matter. You got a situation where you had an ongoing feud between black and white students at this school uh, they end up getting into um there's there's a lot of intimidation. I think one of the white kids hung a noose on a tree outside. Eventually some of the black kids assault uh one of these these uh white students and um they're put on trial, right? They're suspended and they have uh they brought up on, on criminal charges. And so the mass mobilization was about helping them to get to beat this, you know, this case, right? And to to get their lives back. And, you know, like I said, Adolph and and John and I, Jay, we were really like, we couldn't understand why. And I think what what we, the conclusion we all sort of came to was that it was much easier for people to look at a little small town in Louisiana like Gina and see what was a clear, uh, you know, racial play uh, unfolding, right? It was was like a clear morality play. Black students who were being unjustly treated, In a southern town, there's a a sheriff who looks like he's racist. The authority figures don't seem like they're being fair. And so it really fit people's sense of what America has historically been about. And it was easy to sort of take on a strong um, protest stance in that regard. In the case of New Orleans, right, during the Katrina disaster, you had multiple complex forces that were at play, right? You know, you had at the federal level... Um, you know, a failure to to uh, to adequately respond, but then you also have the local level mismanagement and uh, equally you know equally problematic commitment to capitalist planning, which placed property over the lives of you know about a hundred thousand New Orleanians who were left behind and who didn't have automobiles and means of of exit in the city. Right, so it was much more difficult to deal with that. Or even the fact that they were poised to demolish public housing because you couldn't get all everyone to be on board with protecting public housing. Many, many if you talk to you know, um, you know various different populations of, of or constituencies of blacks, not everybody's on board with public housing. You actually see it as something which should have been uh, raised, and that was part of how it was able to be accomplished was because they actually had um, support. From different players and and black actors in the city. So I think that's one of the problems. You know, if you compare those two, Gina Six and Katrina, one is easy, um, you know, unequivocal, anti racist stance that needs to be taken, right? The other one is something different that requires attention to public policy, a willingness to to think about um, the failures of the past while thinking imaginatively and and creatively about what's possible in terms of how do you address uh, water, you know, um, control issues and and flood hazards in a large city like the size of of New Orleans. And so I think that just didn't really, you know, it was a a much more difficult thing for people to mobilize around, right? Um, And and the anti-racist framing of it didn't really help, right? It didn't explain why some Black New Orleans were able to hop in their cars and and escape the disaster, and others were left behind. You needed to have a class analysis in order to understand that. And so, you know, we didn't get it, and that's why you also didn't have the mobilizations. Um, The more recent example I'll give you um, has to do with the ways in which Lori Lightfoot responded to the protests after George Floyd and the ways in which those escalated into full-on riots and looting in downtown one thing she did she immediately did what most mayors would do she used the national guard to create this big perimeter around downtown to protect it from potential looters going forward right she immediately did that the effect that that had however was that it pushed some of that looting activity out into the neighborhoods right and so uh friday and saturday of of um the week before last you had looting in the loop. Right after that, it spreads to the neighborhoods and even to some of the adjacent suburbs. And the effect is, is disastrous for a lot of communities. I mean, some people were already struggling in the midst of the pandemic because they were living in food deserts. Now you have the, the one or two pharmacies or grocery stores that were within the vicinity of various working class and poor neighborhoods. Are now gone, right? Some of them totally gutted. It, and it's unclear whether or not there'll be um you know reinvestment in some of those those uh those stores in the short run or even the long term. The next move that Lori Lightfoot makes is also uh pretty characteristic, right? What she does, you know, after facing a barrage of criticism from you know activists as well as some of the city, uh some of the aldermen in the city is that she hires three uh, private security firms to protect the stores, not the people, right? In many cases, these folks were terrorized um, by vigilantes, by uh, armed gangs, some who were protecting their neighborhoods, some who were simply taking advantage of the chaos and, the, and really the, the retreat of police. Um, she hires these, these private security companies to protect the stores now, I think they spent somewhere around $1.2 million among these three different companies. All three of these companies are, um, are minority-owned firms. And so you could easily see how, going forward, right? there's a way for some mayors, like Lightfoot, to address the questions of inequality through pure symbolism, right again, drawing on this idea of black capitalism. I mean, one of these firms that she she hired is actually one of the the largest um, black owned firms in the country. But you can see how how this may become, you know, one of the models that's used uh, in order to address questions of policing, even as they may scale back the the size of of, of uh, uniformed officers, but also provide like some patronage to. Um, black constituencies in the form of of, uh, of minority contracting, which was what was done in the 1970s in some cities, right? I mean, places like Atlanta, right? You, they engaged in a lot of uh, minority contracting, which produced a tremendous amount of of um, black wealth for some, but didn't necessarily address the deeper inequalities that many working class blacks were, were facing. Right. Uh,
0: w- just finally, uh, if there's going to be the development of a popular movement, and by that mean, I mean more than just popular. I mean actually organized, the real organized thing that people kind of belong to, and have you know organizations of in different cities, and something, you know, where this force can take on not just a strong presence presence in the streets, but also real electoral influence. I think the unions are going to be critical in building such a thing. Do you see that happening? For example, you would think looking at the unions across the country you know teachers in chicago are one of the ones you would think had better move because a lot of them won't yeah.
1: yeah i mean i think i think that's you know chicago is a good model right we've been able to elect a number of democratic socialists to um the city council and i suspect that that that, that will continue right i think that that grows directly out of those earlier victories with the the uh Chicago teachers Union, but I think um you know that's happened in other cities as well, right places like Seattle, but I think that that um I'm not sure what the vehicle might be right i mean um I think unions have a have a role to to play and uh and I'm certainly a union you know union guy, but I just wonder what the form will be, right does it mean? as we saw with Sanders you know in the places where the democratic party is kind of the only game in town you know that you work to to make that party as more as as progressive as it can be right because in some places like those you know those um those states within the the heartland of the country right um that's pretty much the what you have or are or are we looking at something where activist networks and um maybe more ad hoc type formations are going to be more helpful right you know more alliances around around different different issues um i'm not altogether sure
0: yeah i'm, I'm not either but I, i'm guessing it's Some form of all of the above. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the Sanders campaign started taking on some of that character where, you know, all kinds of different organizations uh, uh, endorsed Sanders, although I must say a lot of unions didn't, uh, but some of the more progressive ones did. But around that campaign, it was possible to have many different kinds of organizations while they continued doing their own work that they were doing, endorsed Sanders. Maybe it's something like that where you have a broad front and all the various organizations keep doing what they do, but they agree to some very agreed, basic, common demands and elect some kind of, of leadership. Um, I mean, other countries have done this, where they create these broad fronts, uh, popular movements. Uh, I've never really seen it in, in North America, but right. uh, if we don't do it,
1: I don't. we, th- <laughs> I said the other day, if we don't do it, we're doomed. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. I mean, I think that's one of the virtues of the Sanders campaigns. I think he, I think that that those two campaigns were able to shift some people's attitudes about electoral politics where you had, you know, open disdain for it in some circles, you know, both both people who are political folks who are on the left, but also, you know, people who are apolitical and not really engaged in politics, finally seeing that there may be something that can be wrought from the process. Right. And I think the next thing, of course, is to not see it as, um, you know, as the most important part, but it's really just the first step in 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 trying to build and and um, create the kind of force that you're talking about. Um, I think it's additive is the one way to walk away from it. It's not it's not the whole thing.
0: All right. Well, let's say this is just the beginning of a conversation and we'll additive to it later. <laughs> thanks for joining us, Cedric.
1: All right. Thanks a lot.
0: Thank you for joining us on the analysis.news podcast.